We are continuing a series I began last week on the life of Abraham, thinking about the journey of faith. So this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 3 of Genesis chapter 12. So if you want to open your Bibles there. Also, just to give you a little hint, I'm going to be referring to Genesis 11, so keep your Bibles open for when that moment comes in the sermon. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. May God be glorified in the reading and hearing of his word this morning. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to travel with my son's class to a trip through the northeast part of the United States. Now, one of the places that we stopped to visit for, to stay overnight is Philadelphia. And while we were taking the tour of Philadelphia, we visited the Philadelphia Public Library. Now, that may not be a big deal, and to be honest, we never really went inside the library. What we really wanted to see was outside of the library. Because you know what is located there? A statue of that great American, Rocky Balboa. Thank you. Dun, 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 dun. Because that's where, you know, the iconic scene in that 1976 film, that one best picture, by the way, where he is training to get ready for the fight with Apollo Creed, the master of disaster. And he runs up the steps, and at the top of the steps, he sticks up his arms and is bouncing around. I ran up a step that day. That was it. One step, and I was celebrating. Now, the amazing thing about that film is the minute I mentioned Rocky, it was kind of like, yeah, I know Rocky. And the question is, other than it being a good film, is why has that film become such a part of the American psyche? I mean, it really is. You talk about training. I mean, yo, Adrian, it's part of our vocabulary now. And the reason is this. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of coming from nothing and making something, a story of overcoming the odds, and we love redemption stories. Martin Scorsese, the great director, was interviewing about his latest film, The Irishman, a film, by the way, not for the faint of heart. It's a story of the Irish mob, and he was asked, why, why do you seem to gravitate toward films that focus on gangsters? And he, he answered by saying this, I realize gangsters are bad. But the fundamental question I want to wrestle with is this. Can a person change? Can a person be redeemed? You know why we're drawn to redemption stories? Because we want to know if we can be redeemed. We want to know if that story can be our story. Is there hope that our failures do not have to be final? Is there hope that our sins are not the final note of the symphony of our lives? Is there hope that we can overcome? And the answer to that question is yes. You see, Abraham's story at its core is not just about a man who leaves and, and goes into another country and becomes great. No, the story of Abraham at its basic level is this. Redemption. Redemption. 
for humanity. You see, Abraham's story is not just about one person. It's about all of creation. It's about humanity. You see, to understand the importance and the sheer scope of this covenant that God made with Abraham. You see, God made this. Notice who initiates this relationship. The Lord said to Abram. You see, our God is different from all the other gods. Our God is personal. Our God is individual. Our God has a plan. And he reaches out in grace to Abraham and initiates this covenant. And if we are to understand the importance of this moment in history, we have to understand the context and the circumstances that surround Abraham's call. And to do that, we have to take a much bigger view than just one chapter. To understand the scope of what is happening here, we have to understand everything that has happened in chapters 1 through 11. It's only then that we can understand what redemption is about. I'd remind you, Genesis 1 begins with creation. In the beginning, God. And God created all that is. And he created man and woman and he placed them in the garden. And in that garden, they had everything that they needed. And God gave them one instruction. Enjoy everything in the garden except this one tree. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I would submit to you at that moment, there was a realization of right and wrong. God told them this. The issue where they were being tested was on the issue of will you trust God to give you what you need? The point was desire. If you read Genesis 3 that records the fall, it says that Eve looked at that tree and it was desirous. And so the whole issue of the fall revolves around the issue of desire. Will we give in to our desires, whatever they may be, or will we trust God that he will provide? And tragically, Adam and Eve did not trust God. They gave in to their desires. And sin entered the world. And with sin came death. They were expelled from the garden. But even then, there was grace. God placed a cherubim at the front of the garden to keep humanity from coming back in and partaking of the tree of life. For if humanity were to partake of the tree of life, they would live eternally in a state separated, alienated from God. But God's grace didn't stop there. What did he do? He provided clothing for them to cover their nakedness. And he gave them a promise. One day, one will come from you, Adam and Eve, who will crush the head of the serpent. Death and sin will be destroyed. It wasn't long after that that they had children. Cain and Abel came on the scene. But things still did not go well there. Cain was jealous of Abel. Jealous because God had accepted Abel's offering. The question has been debated, why did he receive one offering and not the next? I think it goes back to the issue of faith and trust. And at that moment, Cain's life became enveloped by fear. Can I be good enough? Will God accept me? And his fear drove him to anger. And his anger drove him to murder his brother. Even after God had warned him, sin is crouching like a lion, Cain. Don't let it master you. But even then there was grace. God placed a mark upon Cain so that as Cain became a wanderer, a nomad, he was protected 
humanity grew in number. And as humanity grew, sin grew also. And after a time, Genesis 9 tells us that God was heartbroken over the state of humanity. And I find it very interesting that in our world today that glorifies violence, that Genesis 9 says that God was heartbroken because he looked at the earth and it was filled with violence. And God being the just judge deemed that the world must be judged. And he sent a flood. But even then there was grace. Because there was a family, a man by the name of Noah, who was instructed to build an ark. And even in the midst of God's judgment, there was grace. And Noah and his family and animals are saved. And when they exit the ark, God gives them the very same command that he had given to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. In other words, have babies and spread out, disperse over all the earth. And indeed, that is what started to happen. And then we come to chapter 11. I draw your attention to verse 1. The whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Shinar is known in the Old Testament as Babylon. Today we know it as southern Iraq. But I draw your attention to the last two words of verse 2. Settled there. They stopped the command was, go out, keep going, but here they stop. And it's here that things take another turn for the worse. They became fixated on the new technologies. Look at verse 3. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly because they had brick for stone and bit them for mortar. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us, but to them, that was technology on the level of iPhone 13, 4, whatever number we're on now. This was huge. This is the latest and greatest technology. And so now they become fixated on that. And because they have this great technology to build these buildings, they say, first, let us build ourselves a, a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. What they built, archaeologists tell us, was called a ziggurat. It had steps moving up unto the heavens. And implicit in that phrase, with its tops in the heavens, is this. We'll use our technology and we will become like God's. We will dwell in the heavens. And then, because of that, look at verse 4 again. Let us make a name for ourselves. Their technology drove them to assume a godlike state in their minds, an arrogance that said, we can conquer all things. I read this and I wonder, in 2022, are we any different Yes, humanity has filled the earth and we have advanced technologically. Yet I wonder if we have not come to worship technology because it makes us feel like gods. Think about it for a moment. How much knowledge is at our fingertips just with, with a phone? And my fear is today we have abounded in knowledge to the point now where there is knowledge without wisdom without discernment. Isn't it very interesting that just as God brought confusion upon the people there, that we live in a day and age where there is so much focus on knowledge, but so little grasp of the truth. It's as if we have all these facts and all this trivia, but we don't know what is real anymore. 
And I wonder if we have become slaves to that which we worship. In 1890, and I apologize to anyone who knows French because I know that I'm about to butcher these names. Auguste Renoir overheard two of his colleagues having a conversation. He was listening to Edgar Degas and Jean-Louis Ferrain talk about the technological miracle that was sweeping Paris. The telephone had reached Paris, France. And Ferrain was quite proud of being one of the first people in the city to have a telephone. So he was talking with Degas. And, he, and Degas asked him, well, does it work well, this telephone? Ferrain said it works very well. You, you turn a little handle and a bell rings at the other end of the wire in the apartment of the person that you're calling. And when he unhooks the earphone, you talk just as easily as if you were in the same room. Degas reflected for a moment. And then he asked, and does it work just as well the other way around? The other person can also turn a little handle and ring you up? Of course, replied Ferrain. And then Degas said, and when the bell rings, you get up and answer it? Ferrain said, yes, certainly. And Degas looked at him and said, just like a servant. Just like a servant. The bell rings and you answer. I wonder if we've become slaves to technology. And the unique thing about the Tower of Babel is that in this instance, there's no grace given. Adam and Eve, there's grace in the covering and the protection of God. With Cain, there's the protection of God. With Noah, there's the ark. With Babel, there's no mention of grace. Until you get to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and a man by the name of Abram. What is the answer to the confusion and the arrogance that was displayed by the people at Babel? It is the grace of God given through Abram. And as you look at this text, I would draw your attention to the fact there are two commands that are listed. They are found in verse 1 at the end of verse 2. The first command is go. This call from God to Abram to go. And the second command, the second imperative is found at the end of verse 2, so that you will be a blessing. Now, you may read that and say, well, so that you will be a blessing doesn't sound like a command. It sounds like a result. Well, in Hebrew grammar, when you have two imperatives that are closely connected in the same narrative, in the same paragraph, what you find is the second imperative shows the consequence or the result of the first imperative. Now you can impress your friends with some Hebrew grammar. What it's saying is this, because you go, Abraham, the result will be this. You're going to be a blessing. And it's so emphatic, God says, there is no doubt that as you obey, as you become this model of faith, you will be a blessing to those that are around you. The result of Abraham going, the result of his faith in God, is that all of humanity has the opportunity to be blessed by God. And notice the call of this, the breadth of this call. Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land. There can be no going without a leaving. You can't go and stay in the same place. This call to Abram to go was to leave behind his family and his land and his people. Abraham was a place from a place called Ur, which was located in Shinar. He was called to come out of this, this people that were just described in chapter 11. To leave them behind. 
We must understand that in obeying God and following Christ, there is a price to be paid. There are things that we must leave behind if we are to walk with Jesus. It may be that relationships have to be rearranged. It may be that desires have to be given up to say, Father, I will follow you and not give in to this temptation. It may be that commitments that are not honoring to Christ must be left behind. We cannot hold on to the hand of Jesus while clinging to the things of this world. Leonard Sweet, a professor and author, tells about a conversation he overheard on the subway. He couldn't help but overhear it because it came, became quite heated. There's a young man talking to a girl, and she was very upset, and he was arguing with her very strongly by saying, but Gina, I made this date with Ramona before you and I even started dating. You can't follow Jesus and cling to the things of the world. And understand that Jesus does not call us to leave things behind because he hates us. See, that's the lie that the evil one wants to tell you. He, Jesus doesn't want you to enjoy these things. If Jesus calls you to leave something behind, it's because he has something better for you. He has life in store for you. And the longer you hold on to those things and try to follow Jesus, you will not experience the fullness of blessing. When I was younger, I used to go to the lake a lot in the summer with a friend of mine who had a, his family owned a house and a boat there. And I reminisce about that a lot now and wax nostalgic about the good old days of being at, at Watts Bar Lake water skiing. Remember the first time I got in the boat with my friend and they were going to teach me how to water ski. I got in the water and they had told me, you know, keep your knees bent, be ready. And just before, as I was, as I was holding on to the rope and had the, the handle in my hand, my friend leaned over and he said, and Mark, one thing. When you fall, don't let go of the rope. Gotcha. I'm, I'm a little naive and very trusting. So I'm up and I'm going, and it's not long before I face plant. But I remembered what Murray said, and I held on to the rope. And I'm being drugged across the top of Watts Bar Lake, drinking this water that I don't even know where it's been. And it dawned on me, he lied to me. And at that point, I realized I've got to let go of this or I'm going to die. We can't hold on to the things of the world and expect to live. So understand that when Jesus is speaking to you and he's saying let go, he's saying let go of the rope. It's dragging you. It's killing you. That's why Jesus addressed the rich young ruler. When this rich young man came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, follow the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, I've done that. And Jesus says, one more thing. Sell all you have and give to the poor. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that because having stuff is wrong. He said that because he knew that that man was holding on to stuff as his God. And he knew that that young man needed to let go of greed if he were to have a relationship with him, with Jesus. The young man walked away sorrowful. He didn't want to let go of the rope. So the question for us is, if we are to follow, we must learn to let go and obey just as Abraham did. Now, I want to be clear about something here. Abraham was not considered righteous because he obeyed. We're going to see later where Abraham failed and failed miserably. 
Abraham obeyed because he trusted God. It's very important. Trust leads to obedience. It is trust in God that leads to salvation. In fact, Abraham is the model of faith in God, of being saved by faith. In fact, Paul wrote in Galatians, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. We experience the blessing God gave to Abraham by faith. And notice in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. Now here's the irony. If you look back to verse 11, I'm sorry, chapter 11, look at verse 4. The people of Babel say, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. What they wanted, God provided Abraham. God will provide something superior to all the temptations that we face if we will but trust him. That's why he comes and he says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now understand, salvation is not found in trusting Abraham. To honor Abraham is to recognize the God who called him and the God who saved him. To dishonor Abraham is to reject the God who called him. Because the promises given to Abraham find their culmination in Christ. You see, that's why he says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. One, because Abraham is a model of being saved by faith, being counted righteous by faith. And two, it is through Abraham's lineage that Jesus comes. So he is saying that in you, Abraham, we learn what salvation by faith is, and the Messiah will indeed come. In fact, a picture of what is promised to Abraham is found in Revelation chapter 7. When he says, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue gathered before the throne of God. That's the culmination of all the families gathering. So you see, how does God work to bring redemption to humanity? By his grace, through one man who models what faith is about. That's our hope. The start of the journey is with God. And it is our hope of redemption. I want to ask you, if you will, to bow your heads with me now. This morning, as you've heard this message, the Lord may be speaking to your heart. And you recognize that there's never been a time where you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This morning, if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, I will be here at the front during our invitation or even after the service. I'll be available to talk with you about what it means to be saved by faith. This invitation also calls for us as believers to examine our hearts. Are there things we're holding on to? Some things are hard to let go because it's risky. To follow Christ means to risk rejection. It means a reordering of our commitments. It means saying no to temptation because Jesus has something better. So this morning, believer, I ask you, is there something you're clinging to rather than Jesus? This altar is open if you want to come and pray and let go of that and experience life. Father, I thank you that you are gracious. You initiate grace. You initiate this invitation. And you are calling us to follow Christ. Help us to do that, O oh Lord. Help us, Lord, to leave our country behind, our comfort zone. Help us to leave our idols behind.
Grant this, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.